Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of On Air with the Chair. As always, I'm Captain Nick James, your MEC chairman, and joining me later in the show today is going to be our chief operating officer at Endeavor, Philip Underwood. Philip will be here to talk to us about LOA 130 and 131 and how those agreements will set Endeavor up for future success. We'll talk about the steps the company is taking to stabilize and grow the airline, along with our continued partnership with Delta Airlines within the DCI market. Also, remember, if you have a question or an idea for a topic that you'd like us to address on one of the On Air with the Chairs, please email that to edvonair at alpha.org. Again, that's edvonair at alpha.org. So we're going to start this podcast with our what's new section and what is new at Endeavor. Obviously, LOA 130 and 131 are new, but those were covered in a previous podcast and one of our on-air with the chair live calls. So we won't delve into detail on those. However, if you do want to listen to those, they're available on Podbean and on the EDV MEC website. You could also reference the latest Friday hotline, um, which was sent out uh, the 18th. And there are links there that uh, you can proceed to to listen to both of those or watch the, the live the live call. What I want to talk to the pilot group today is about the Endeavor slash DCI metering for off the street pilots and then just kind of the overall onboarding process in general at Delta. So recently Endeavor announced, um, I should say Delta through Endeavor announced that they would be quote unquote metering OTS pilots. Um, that were successful and were able to garner a CJO at Delta. I know that this was very, very unwelcome news by a lot of off-the-street candidates who believed that they were going to be able to get to Delta in the next, you know, maybe 30, 60, or possibly 90 days. Um, the problem that it, Delta is facing right now is that they are trying to ensure that they have a strong DCI network so that they can continue to operate in the markets that they have committed to operating in and bring those customers into the hub. You know, we are kind of that lifeline of that hub and spoke model. And so as we are experiencing attrition, at least here at Endeavor, that is unsustainably high, we're talking, you know, mid 50s, 60, I think last December, we even saw, saw as high as 68. In order for us to ensure our long-term viability, we do have to control attrition. And it's not, again, not just in the Endeavor network, but also in the Republic and Sky West networks as well. And so one of the things that uh, Delta has made the decision to do is decide to meter how quickly they take DCI pilots from their respective carriers and move them over to mainline. Now, why has Delta chosen to, to meter that? Well, again, to protect their network. And certainly this is going to be a question that we'll ask Philip Underwood uh, later in the show. But they have a strong need to protect their regional operation. I do want to say that, you know, metering is not something that Delta wants to do, okay? They're doing it out of operational necessity more than anything else. If LOA 130 and 131 is successful in retaining pilot talent, you know, specifically captains or high-time first officers, and it is successful in acquiring street captains, we assume that Delta will be lifting uh, those metering restrictions and allowing OTS pilots to move to the mainline brand faster than anticipated. And again, we'll talk to Philip, you know, later in the show um, about what Delta is looking to do and, and is that on their radar. Now, there is a risk proposal in metering 
pilots that have these conditional job offers uh, on behalf of Delta. And that that risk proposal is the fact that there are a lot of opportunities out there for airline pilots, you know, whether it's at the LCC markets, American, United, FedEx, UPS, and a lot of pilots out there are able to garner multiple CJO offers. So then the question becomes, do I wait, you know, five, six, seven, eight months, whatever it's going to be, do I wait that time frame to take my CJO to Delta or do I capture seniority somewhere else faster? And with the hiring that is going on right now, being some of the largest that we've ever seen in the industry, there's a lot of push and a lot of pull to possibly take that earlier seniority number. And so there, again, exists a risk proposal on Delta's part. Delta does believe that they are the premier carrier and the best long-term career solution for pilots, and they do believe that that would be worth a a several-month wait. Now, it's going to be up to the pilots to decide what is best for their individual situations and scenarios. And we very well might see a tranche of pilots that wait. We may see a tranche of pilots that go. Um, But from Endeavor's standpoint, what we're trying to do at the MEC level is start to control attrition through pattern and collective bargaining that increases our JCBA, gives you more options and opportunities and, and better income and eventually quality of life potential so that you will reside here. And then therefore, we could also get uh, some of those off the streets moved off our list. Now, also remember as well, in terms of the OTS pilots, from the Endeavor MEC's perspective, because I've heard from a lot of off the street pilots of, you know, what are you trying to do for us? You know, there really isn't a lot that we can do because the JCBA, you know, our authority begins and ends at that collective bargaining agreement. And so we don't control the off the street process, nor do we control the onboarding timeline from those conditional job offers. That is completely controlled by Delta. Um, Not even the uh, Delta MEC has control of that through the PWA. So if we were to take a look at what are we going to do with this off the street, what you know our preference would be would be to just fold those into uh, a higher flow number. Respect seniority, and let's go to 25, 30, even 40 a month on flow if we possibly can, can do that by controlling attrition. That's how we would address the problem. Um, I know that that isn't necessarily what the off the street pilots want to hear because, again, they garnered that off the street interview. They got that conditional job offer, and now they may be able to get to Delta faster through that mechanism. But from uh, a union standpoint and a collective bargaining standpoint and a seniority standpoint, that absolutely makes sense to just increase the flow numbers and maybe just not even do any off the streets. So please keep that in mind um, that you know we are trying to work in a seniority-based system. Another question that I've gotten from some of these CJO holders is, why can't the union try to get um, holdback provisions similar or exactly the same um, as they did in the flow agreement? Well, you know, keep in mind that the flow agreement was a migration of Compass LOA 9, and that was already an established agreement where the Delta MEC, because they control seniority and longevity, they had already established that that would be offered inside that letter of agreement. And that LOA-9 migrated into LOA-125, and it contained that 90-day seniority and longevity holdback provisions. We did try to get seniority and longevity during this latest round of negotiations, and we're going to continue to champion that. I'm sure it's something I'm going to be talking to Philip Underwood about later today. We're going to continue to champion that, but if we're going to champion seniority and longevity, we're going to champion seniority and longevity for all pilots, You know, not just in off-the-street cadre. We're going to try to get a seniority-based system for everyone here, an advanced accrual, so to speak. The other thing I think it's, it's salient to remember is that Delta, you know, they have some concerns about handing out seniority in advance um, 
of your normal onboarding data, Delta? And does that keep you competitive or does that keep Delta, excuse me, competitive with United American? And there's also some longevity issues uh, in terms of costs that I touched on. Uh, actually, I spoke in more detail on in a previous podcast. So those are the concerns uh, from Delta's standpoint. And if they didn't want to deal in that realm with 2,000 pilots and they'd rather do LOA 130 and 131 and spend $250 million, it's unlikely that they're going to be willing to engage for a smaller subset of pilots as well. So those are some of the obstacles that we face uh, in that. Now, real quick, uh, before we bring Philip onto the show, let's talk about the Delta onboarding process. Um, there are still pilots that uh, are failing to either update or publish their airline applications in a timely manner as they move through this uh, Delta onboarding process. Please remember, the only thing that you have to do, your, your requirement under 125 is to make your election during the 45-day notice of flow opportunity window that is open. And once that is complete, and we would actually recommend uh, before it is complete, make sure your airline apps is up to date and published. If you're not really sure how to do airline apps, there are numerous companies out there for a small fee. They will absolutely walk you through it and they will do app reviews for you. While an app review may not ne be necess as necessary as it was in the past to, e to garner uh, an interview, because obviously this is an interview, this is a guaranteed job. Remember that application and the complete logbook, that is the first picture that Delta receives of you. Whether your job to Delta or your movement to Delta is guaranteed or not, you always want to be putting your best foot forward. So whether it is the airline applications or whether that is a COVID vaccine or a COVID exemption or a yellow fever vaccine, make sure that you are taking all of these steps in a timely fashion. We've also heard from a number of pilots as far as the Delta onboarding process is concerned that multiple requests are being made uh, from different departments, uh, requests for information that was sent, you know, two, three, sometimes even four times. Certainly understand the frustration um, on the pilot's end, but just continue to work with the Delta onboarding team. They've got a Herculean task over at Delta as they're not only trying to onboard as many pilots as they possibly can and in record numbers, but really in record numbers of employees as well. So please just be patient with them and work through it. Um, it is a great company. It is a great career. And we um, are all fortunate to have that uh, defined pathway to Delta. Just do the best job that you can. And when you do run into any types of issues, you could always uh, email the company at uh, askflow at endeavorair.com. And you could also CC the union at edvflow at alpa.org. All right, now that we've gotten through the what's new section, let's switch gears and bring on our special guest, Chief Operating Officer of Endeavor, Philip Underwood. Phil, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Nick. It's a real honor to be here today. Absolutely. Well, Philip, let's first start off and let's let the pilots know a little bit about who you are, what's your background, what brought you to Endeavor, and the roles that you play within the DCI network. Yeah, great. No, let, let's start from the very beginning when I uh, graduated out of high school in the great state of Washington. I ended up uh, having a decision to make. Do I go to college, first of all, or do I go to the military? And I ultimately elected to go to the military. Didn't have any money saved up for college, so it made sense to hit the military, do the GI Bill. Ended up doing six years in the Marine Corps. Uh, luckily, during the Marine Corps time, I was able to get some, uh, some of my uh, college requirements out of the way. Ultimately led me to, at the end of my enlistment, was to go finish up my undergraduate degree. When I finished my undergraduate degree, I went to work for a company called Ernst & Young. Uh, they're a big four accounting firm uh, based here in Atlanta. So I moved from the West Coast to the East Coast, uh, largely due to where this is the predominantly where my family lives. 
And I worked for Ernst & Young for about three years and then got a big call from Delta one day back in uh, 1999 that they were hiring. I uh, took advantage of that opportunity. There were a lot of Ernst & Young alumni uh, in the finance organization. Came on board, uh, started working in financial reporting. Did about five years in that org- part of the organization. And worked my way over to the operations at Delta Technical Operations. So I ended up doing another five years over there and uh, was a division controller. Uh, also have a CPA, uh, a completely uncharacteristic chief operating officer here, but I do have a CPA <laughs> and I'm also a chartered global management accountant. Uh, so uh, definitely a, a numbers nerd at the end of the day. So I can have you do my taxes now. Uh, you know, it's been a while. Be- I'm a little dangerous with taxes, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I do keep up with it, Nick. Definitely. Uh, at, at the time uh, over at Delta Tech Ops, I really had an affinity for the operations. And uh, that had largely due to the fact that, number one, I served in the military, loved being around the front line, loved being around people that were just, you know, turning wrenches, uh, just felt really at home down there. So I'd often would go walk the shop floor. And then, uh, you know, after five years, like I said, uh, at Delta Tech Ops, uh, David Garrison approached me one day and said, hey, you know, do you, what do you think about coming on board, uh, being a part of our operations, being an operational leader? And I, I thought, hey, this is fantastic. And uh, there started my operational career. So I worked under David, started off uh, inventory components, uh, worked my way into the engine side, uh, learned how to run the engine shop, and then ultimately migrated over to the sales organization. So they have a MRO sales group over there. And I worked in that for close to uh, two or three years doing that. So all in, uh, you know, my Delta Tech Ops time was about five or six years. Uh, in the operations. And then, uh, you know, the opportunity to come over to Delta Connection uh, came came to be. I uh, got a call from Eric Snell. So Eric is our SVP uh, over Delta Connection and uh, the OCC down there in Atlanta. And Eric said, hey, I'd love for you to come on over and uh, be part of Delta Connection. And so there started my career in DC. And the first guy I ran into was uh, Ryan Gum <laughs> on my first day of work. And uh, Ryan sat me down and told me all the great things about Endeavor. And he said, you know, whatever your future plans are, please think of Endeavor first. And uh, that's always been my mindset on day one. And uh, as we went through, uh, you know, the difficult process of, of uh, shrinking from six carriers down to three, you know, the idea is just the value that Endeavor was generating for the, the enterprise at Delta. It made a whole lot of sense to make Endeavor the largest of, of the three. And uh, today, um, you know, I sit here with, uh, got a phone call about, a, a, about nine months ago, uh, from Jim and, uh, indicating, Hey, we'd love for you to come up and replace Joe Miller, who happens to be a real close friend of mine. I'd love for you to be the COO. So here I am today, you know, it's been uh, quite a, quite a journey, 23 years at Delta. Uh, but this has to be my favorite job I've ever had. Very nice. Well, you know, we do definitely appreciate uh, having you here at Endeavor. I've appreciated working with you and Jim and the team. It's, it's been a wonderful experience thus far. Um, one of the things that I found most interesting about your background, you know, just kind of in our sidebar discussions and our conversations was that DCI component piece. Um, some pilots that, you know, were here back in the 11, 12, 13, 14 timeframe that remember the bankruptcy, that remember the consolidation of Pinnacle, Colgan, Masaba, they also remember that name Ryan Gum because Ryan really came in here at a time that was pretty dark in our history and said, you know, the goal is to make this the premier regional airline and the preferred partner of Delta Airlines. Well, I mean, that's easy to say, right? And that's what you would expect a CEO and leader to say. However, on the heels of Comair shutting down, being the last wholly owned carrier of, of Delta, there was obviously a lot of trepidation and concern amongst the pilot group that is there going to be substance 
substance put behind that. And there absolutely was, and it turned, it did turn it around. But what we didn't see, because we saw what Ryan was doing, what we didn't see, and I found this very interesting, was what you were doing behind the scenes on the DCI network piece, um, really trying to build Endeavor up inside that portfolio so that we could be referenced as the gold standard of the DCI carriers. So you want to touch on that just a little bit more on on what you have done and and how kind of that DCI network in and of itself is kind of like your little baby. Yeah, well, let's start. Let's definitely start off with um, on day one, again, going back to the original part of my story. Uh, running into Ryan Gum and we sat down and we knew the task in hand was to uh, really consolidate Delta Connection. We had six carriers. That was just too many. Uh, we knew the future plan. We wanted, uh, we wanted to bring forward uh, the companies that were going to fulfill kind of the mission at the end of the day. And so as we looked at it, Endeavor was, was it. And so it was a bit of a ballet in, in terms of we had to do this from a contractual standpoint. As contracts were getting close to their expiration date, doing the necessary legwork to determine where those aircraft aircraft fit best. And what was great about that is when you looked at Endeavor and what the maintenance program was doing, we knew that maintenance program was top notch. So Bill Donahue did a fantastic job turning that around and making that really the gold standard. And so if we started with operations and we started with that maintenance platform, that's where we went first. Um, CRJ 900 aircraft, CRJ 700 aircraft, what do those fit best? Obviously, it was to bring those aircraft over to Endeavor. So that started the pathway in building this up. Uh, you know, we got rid of, I believe the first one to go out was ExpressJet. And then that was followed by GoJet. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with just where they were flying. So Delta was changing their network. They wanted to consolidate. They wanted to get economies of scale. And again, every single time you looked at that, uh, those aircraft that were coming off contract, it was very clear it was going to end up being Endeavor. That was how we wanted to go. We did have a goal in mind of Endeavor being somewhere close to 40 to 50% of the overall DC portfolio. So again, it made sense with the Bombardier aircraft coming off contract. Let's give those to Endeavor. We know they can do it maintenance-wise. We know they fly great. They've got great customer service scores. It just fit. It was a perfect fit for us. And uh, got down to three, the Compass aircraft, and I think it'll be good. We'll, we'll probably touch on a little e-jets <laughs> in the future here in, the, in this conversation. But you know, when Compass was winding down, we actually started a process within Endeavor to begin looking at our e-jets a possibility. Right? I know we'll touch on that in a little bit here. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we did, we did a lot of good legwork. We did all the homework. We put the business case together. Uh, but the stars just did not align in terms of timing and when we wanted to get it done. So things were moving really fast, if you recall, with the wind downs of Compass and GoJet and just too much happening too quickly. Uh, we weren't quite ready to, to pull the trigger on that. Well, and it's happening, you know, kind of at the beginning throes of the pandemic where cash conservation is going to be king because you just didn't know what your outlook and your revenue models were going to look like. So, I mean, it makes sense that you're not going to make that kind of capital investment at that point in time. That's right. Um, hopefully things have have changed uh, some and they continue to improve. Well, I mean, that's a, you know, I think that that really gives our listeners a, a good understanding of of kind of the history. But now what we're seeing is we're seeing the DCI portfolio, and it's really not the DCI portfolio. That probably isn't a fair statement. We're seeing the fee-for-departure model, period, under a lot of pressure um, because of the enormous opportunities out there in the LCC and mainline markets You know where pilots can go and, and get better contracts, better pay, uh, and better work roles. So one of the things that, that you and I just did at the table was LOA 130 and LOA 131. And the impetus behind that is to try to not only stabilize this carrier, but also grow this carrier. So how do you view 130 and 131 working towards those goals? Yeah, well, you hit the nail on the head there, Nick, just in terms of the number one, 
was stabilization of the enterprise. Uh, we were losing upwards to 60 pilots a month that were leaving the property. Uh, we could not sustain that in the long run. Uh, unfortunately, if we had to sustain that in the long run, uh, it would be detrimental to the enterprise and really Delta's mission at the end of the day. And so as we look at 130 and 131, uh, it begins with stabilization, but I also want to add another aspect in there is just quality of life, right? We've had a lot of conversations you and I've had about just that pilot quality of life out there with the network, and it's just not perfect yet, right? That network, when coming out of COVID, uh, just has not repaired itself. So we have that slack time in the schedule. Uh, it's inefficient. And I think one, what we've done, I believe it's 131, uh, really gives our pilots an opportunity to, okay, I know I'm going to be out on the road, but at least I'm going to get, you know, at least I'm going to get something for it, sure. right? I'm not just stuck with it. Uh, we're not done yet in that aspect, I can tell you, uh, on the quality of life piece. Th this is just step one. Step two is we're going to begin looking at hotels, right? We've got to look at that. Fatigue, I, I think more recently we did our, our uh, MBR at the end of the month, and it uh, highlighted to me that we're still getting fatigue calls. We still have hotels that need to be replaced. So Jay Furnish, I think many folks know who Jay is, but Jay has taken a really hard look at where we stand in terms of hotels, and we need to determine what we need to upgrade those. Secondly, or third to that is we need to go back deeper with it, with Alpo. We got to open it back up. Where are the other quality of life areas where we have opportunity? I think that's just a collaboration that we're going to have going forward. Yeah, and I think you and I both have a pretty good idea of how to improve quality of life. But you know, quality of life, you know, unfortunately for the the business is usually synonymous with headcount uh, increases. And you know, when we're having a staffing crunch, it is difficult to increase those headcounts. I've had pilots that have reached out to me and said, we would love to see a five-hour midday. Yeah, I can imagine exactly why you'd want to see a five-hour midday, because it absolutely would drive days off. But it would require you and the company to then staff 100 to 150 more pilots just to fly the current schedule that we have. And so we've got to, like you said, first stabilize, then take a look at the growth model. And again, you know, we have foreshadowed that we will be talking about e-jets here in a little bit, and we absolutely will, but you've got to get that growth and stabilization before you can go after some of those other quality of life metrics. Absolutely agree with you. Well, speaking of, you know, 130 and 131 and stabilization and growth, can you share with the pilot group any targets that you have for retention? I mean, what do you want to see as far as our attrition numbers coming down? I mean, right now you said they've been hovering around 60. What would you ideally, and well, ideally you'd like to probably see zero, but what do you reasonably expect to see? And, you know, what kind of numbers are you looking for on the street captain acquisition side? Yeah, great. Well, let's just start with that. Again, 60 attrition number was, uh, you know, very high, unsustainable long term. Really, the goal when you look at it is, you know, at a minimum, we want to be able to 25 people going to Delta every month, right? That would include 20 through the flow. Uh, we can handle up to about five off the street. We're looking at if we can hold the additional attrition down to potentially another 15. So when you look at it all in, our target would be around 40, leaving out on a particular month, uh, majority going to Delta. We really believe that puts us in a really nice position to, uh, number one, stabilize, but also have the people behind them coming through our classes. Our, again, our classes are full into the October and November timeframe, or at least they're filling up. And so that really puts a nice platform for us where we can bring new folks in as, as we are able to attrit or handle up to 40. Uh, over time, we would love you know, like I had indicated, 25 going to Delta, we would really have to open our aperture up and see if we can make that even bigger, especially if we can demonstrate that we have stabilized. And if we do show that we're having a surplus of pilots, then that's a great problem for us to have. Then we can actually go back to Delta and say, hey, we can handle more than the 20. 
maybe it's 25 flow. Maybe there's five off the street. Maybe there's 10 off the street. Maybe there's some combination of there, but it'll be a matter of working with Delta on what's best for them as well to feed into their enterprise. Sure. And from the association's perspective, I mean, we would obviously love to see more flow numbers, right? And, you know, this is for kind of all the off the street pilots there. You know, we're not going to impede your ability to move to Delta via off the street. But when we think about, you know, seniority, obviously a guaranteed and contractual seniority based system is what we're going to advocate for uh, first and foremost. Um, do you see, you know, if 130, 131 can help stabilize and start to grow this, this airline, do you see Delta being able to release the the constraints on the current metering that's going on for off the street pilots within the entire DCI network? Because I know that that has definitely been a point of contention. Uh, do you see that as a possibility? I do see that as a possibility, especially if we can demonstrate that we've stabilized and that we have enough pipeline to, to backfill. I do believe those apertures are going to open up. Again, there, there's really good open dialogue with Delta. So we just need to make sure that as we see it coming together and we see success there, that we are proactive. Uh, we don't want to be waiting for the end. I think what you'll find, Russ and I will be, is very proactive that, hey, we've got the ability to, to flow more. We've got the ability to send more. So I, I do think that metering will kind of solve itself you know, when we get into this uh, you know, surplus environment that I'm hoping that we'll get to. So if you know, you know, moving forward in the next two, three months, if all of a sudden we see our attrition drop to 35, it would be pretty easy if your target attrition is 40 to obviously send another five off the street or maybe even six or seven if you feel like your new hire classes are stable and you're getting the street captains to come in. Is that kind of what definitely, we're hearing? Definitely. Absolutely. That would be the goal. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just want to confirm too that, you know, the metering is not an endeavor specific issue. I mean, we're we're talking about metering both at Republic and Sky West, correct? That is correct. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Because that's something that I know the pilots were a little concerned about is, am I being harmed by serving an, an endeavor? And, and you're not being harmed by serving an endeavor. This is a, a DCI network wide problem. Um, okay, well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit since we've talked about attrition and we've talked about metering and let's get to that uh, little foreshadowing that we were doing earlier. And let's talk about growth because there's there's the stabilization component and then there's the growth component. And, you know, ever since about 2017, we've heard that ebb and flow of that rumor of that e-jet coming on property. So kind of what is the latest and greatest information coming down from Delta as far as that is concerned? Great. No, it's awesome. This is the exciting part of it. And I love this part of my job the most is, is uh, you know, being the mastermind behind the fleet and working with Delta, uh, Delta Connection to, to piece it together. Let's start with uh, some Bombardier aircraft that we're going to have. So Lufthansa, we've recently taken four aircraft out of Lufthansa. Uh, we're going to park them temporarily. The objective here is to put those in the air show at the end of 2023. What we're going to do right now is we'll take the aircraft, we're going to use the engines to support the operation until such time that we get the aircraft ready to go into service. Again, this all goes back to the stabilization. Uh, once we demonstrate that we can stabilize, then those four aircraft will go on the docket to come back into the air show at the end of next year. Uh, the beauty of that, I'll be honest with you, is that those four aircraft, uh, we will likely be taking those from SkyWest. So their portfolio goes down, our portfolio goes up. So hence growth, right, is what we're going to be looking at in that dual class fleet. On the horizon in 2024, we've got an additional 11 aircraft that are going to come off contract in SkyWest uh, that I've been petitioning for for a couple of years. Back in my old Delta Connection job, I actually had Endeavor penciled in uh, for those airplanes. Uh, now I've got to continue with Jim and also Brian Darso, who many of you may know, but Brian uh, took my position down in Atlanta. Uh, I've been putting a bug in his ear uh, every time I get that, hey, those 11 aircraft, if we stabilize or we show growth, we really want those airplanes. And uh, so when you look at the portfolio, we have 15 aircraft worth of growth here within the next two years that we can get our hands on. But we're not done yet. Here come the E-Jets. 
had a good, and, and I think it's free for me. I think it's good for me to share with, with the association that, uh, had that conversation with Jim just yesterday on eJets, and uh, there is a movement in Delta for us to dust off our old business plan on the eJets, uh, get it ready, uh, in the spirit of you just don't know what's going to happen out there, right? With Sky West and Republic, uh, strong partners, but you just don't know where their business model is going to mm-hmm. go. So the request has been get ready, let's dust it off, let's make sure it makes sense, let's put it through the motions. And if it does, then you know, we're ready to go at a moment's notice on getting that in place. And I believe the the target would be it takes about nine months uh, to get it all in place organically versus going to acquire one. So nine months is a really good advanced time and notice for us to to begin that work. And then it's about of uh, it's about getting aircraft. And uh, when you look long term, it really does make sense uh, for the Delta Network to have. EJETs at Endeavor. I know that's my own personal belief, but when you look at it strategically, uh, we are the largest, you know, carrier on that East Coast market, right? And those, what uh, Delta Network wants to do is keep those EJETs on the coastal coastal routes. So you see them flying up and down the, the East Coast. Well, think of economies of scale where those are coming out at. So here we are, big presence in New York, a little bit of a growing presence in Boston, Obviously, big presence in Atlanta, coastal routes, key business markets. Don't you want your best guy flying the e-jets for you in those particular markets? And that's why I think you're seeing a movement down at Delta today. Hey, let's just dust this off because long term, it seems to have some strategic relevance to us and, and especially those key business markets. And, you know, I've got to brag on our net promoter score. Our net promoter score has outperformed everybody. And especially when you look at how we compare to Republic, uh, we're you know, plus five points higher in some cases, plus 10 points higher than they are in the net promoter score. And a lot of that is your business customer, right? Mm -hmm. And so where do you think the business customer is going to get most value, right? It would be having us fly those aircraft. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a big focus of mine, Nick. I want to grow this airline. That's what I came here for. (laughs) And I really would love to see the day where we can bring those e-jets on board, but there's some things we've got to be able to demonstrate, right? It goes to the stability. It has to go to our cost model at the end of the day. Uh, it's going to have to go to just, are we giving that value added, you know, uh, you know, business, uh, over to Delta? Are we doing all those things that Delta wants us to do? And those are really key for us to keep secure as we go forward. We want this to be a very easy decision for them. Sure. I rambled on a little bit no, there. No, so no, you are, for that. no, you're totally fine. It was, it was really good information. There's no rambling when it's a lot of good substantive information. I guess my question for you is, you know, we talked and we've communicated this to the pilot group. We talked during 130 and 131 in those negotiations and the company's desire to see our pilots dual qualified. And for, the, for those pilots that may not be familiar with what that means, it means that, you know, for a CRJ pilot, you will be able to fly any of the variants, 200, 700s and 900s. Now, you know, from the association's perspective, we said to, to you, Philip, we are more than happy to talk about what that can look like. It's just we had a about a 60-day window to get this deal done. And unfortunately, there are so many tentacles to dual qualifying from what is a pilot going to get paid and how do the PBS schedules are going to work and even how you're going to get the pilots dual qualified. It's easy to dual qual the new hire pilots coming in, but how do you get your current cadre of pilots through that, uh, through that footprint? And until you do, what kind of schedule interruptions are there going to be? What is the training and testing concerns? What are the safety concerns? And so the, the enchilada was just too large to take a bite out of at that point in time. But I have to kind of think that a, a lot of the impetus behind getting dual qualified because there's a lot of training costs that are saved in, in that scenario, 
has got to be so that we could also bring the E-Jets on here so that we're still just maintaining essentially two different fleet types as far as training and not necessarily three. Is that really kind of one of the biggest reasons why you want to see a dual qual system? Yeah, two two things. One, I actually do believe that dual qual really does set you up nicely for an E-Jet, right? Where you, you know, all the pilots are trained on the Bombardier fleet, and then you'll have a set that are on the on the Embraer fleet if we do ultimately bring that in. Uh, what you don't want, you, you, you definitely want to mix between the, the 200s, the 700s, the 900s. You just want to make that all one common fleet if you mm-hmm. can, right, from an efficient schedule efficiency perspective. Overall, I think we, our utilization goes up, better quality of life. I think the foundation will be there you know, for us to do that dual call. Do recognize it's going to take a while, and I'll look forward to working with you, know, you and, and the team on let's do this right. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that it's not going to be a, the lowest cost solution to begin with, but I think over time, the company will benefit from it just by having that, uh, you know, ability for that pilot to go from a 200 to a 700 to a 900 seat uh, just freely. And I, I see a lot of value in that operationally and where we can be even more efficient in the long run. Perfect. Well, Phil, this is where I also have to make a pitch for the fleet guarantee, because uh, obviously mm-hmm. we always talk about growth. And growth is great. You know, we, we obviously love to see growth because it gives pilots more opportunities and it brings more jets and therefore more jobs under what, you know, we consider to be an industry leading contract here in the fee for departure network. But we always want to make sure that that's got a very good solid foundation and security. So as we talk about that, you know, hopefully the company is going to be able to be able to talk about what a fleet guarantee is going to look like and maybe renew that up that lengthen that whatever it's going to be just to make sure that we've provided a solid foundation and pathway in the future for all the pilots. Um, Well, speaking of pilots and getting more pilots on board, there's been a lot of um, changes in the training department to try to onboard pilots. So let's talk just a little bit about what the kind of long-term goals are. We know the company wanted to go from 40 to 50 to 60. It seems like you're able to manage about 60 new hires per month, but that really isn't your end state. We've been hearing rumors that, you know, you kind of want to move to that 100, 110 platform, which would also help obviously with metering and stabilization and growth and all those things. Are you on pace to do that? And what is that time frame? Yeah, you, you see the, some of the work behind the scenes in terms of the strategy starting to play out, and it really begins to play out there in that, in that training environment. So when we sat down at the very beginning of last July, and uh, we began to think about where do we want to take the airline, and one of the, one of the positions was we really need to focus in on that training environment. We need to have the ability to expand that training footprint. We all look at each other like, oh my God, how are we going to be able to do that? So the first place to start was Phoenix. Should we retain those two stems or grow? Or would it be better to grow Minneapolis? And uh, the answer quickly came back is we don't have the footprint that we want to be able to expand up to 100 pilots a month. With the anticipation is that we were going to start flowing, right? We had to solve for that. So what we've done is uh, we're building out here in Minneapolis. We're putting two more CRJ 900 sims in there. We're also putting some convertibles in. So we're currently under process right now doing a 200 to 900 convertible. And we're going to make this uh, kind of our learning uh, center of excellence is, is the way I've been told to describe it as we go forward here. But we'll have eight sims here. And this is the area where we really want to bring everybody in to go train. Phoenix will be really that flex that we need. So as we're sending 100 people through every single month, we will be sending folks down to Phoenix. But we do have a contractual end date on that. So depending how we want to flex up and flex down, uh, we'll be able to use that Phoenix facility. But this is going to be home base here in Minneapolis. And the idea is, is to flex up uh, to 100. If we can get the flow going, and right, you and I talked about, hey, 25 to 30 to 35 to 40 per month, this really gives you the foundation to be able to go ahead and do that. 
uh, we expect to have that those last two sims online uh, at towards the end of November. Well, that's really great information, Philip, about the training department. Let's take a step back though, just real quick. Um, one topic that I wanted to make sure that we covered, you know, because we talked about you know street captains, we talked about that you know maybe nine month gap where we're going to be hurting. We talked about the hundred to one hundred and fifty you know street captains or or. 121 pilots with with time uh, towards that number. Has the company considered maybe lifting the seat locks on the 200 first officers? Because, you know, the 200, they're not getting a whole lot of flight time. 900 typically gets a little bit more. You've got some pilots with three, 400 hours towards their thousand already on that frame. Has the company considered lifting seat locks and allowing them to go to the 900? Because we do have a, a cadre of pilots right now with that time that could serve the enterprise well. Yeah, great timing on that question, Nick. We we were talking about that as of yesterday. I do believe as we come to the end of this, uh, in terms of LOA 130, 131, when we see the end result of it, we're going to be able to really take a hard look at it. And I know it's a conversation going on between Jay and also with Russ, uh, even as of this morning. And so that conversation is going to continue. I see value in that if we're able to make that effective. What are the constraints in lifting the seat locks, though? What other problems or downline effects could it have for you? Yeah, we need to we need to definitely focus on just what the training impact is going to be, right? We're trying to get a lot of people through this training footprint right now, and this just puts added pressure on that. We also need to be conscientious of cost, you know, when it all boils down to it. You know, with those two things in, in particular, we just really need to make sure that we're focused on them and that we don't disrupt that training environment and that we can fit people in at the right pace. So. Uh, with all that being said, I do believe we've got to take a look at it. If it's the right thing for the enterprise to do, you'll see us act on it. Perfect. So, you know, in an ideal situation, you know, if we're able to stabilize and grow and, you know, we have a plan to possibly bring on e-jets, you know, you already said that, you know, we're about 40, hopefully getting closer to 50% of the DCI portfolio. Where do you kind of see Endeavor's end state size in that portfolio? Yeah, I do. The great question, too. I would love to see Endeavor around 50%. I know there's uh, discussions been down in Atlanta. Should we make them bigger? Should we make them smaller? The sweet spot to me is right around that 50% of the, of the network. If we have that, we have full control ultimately of that network. Uh, servicing in those key business markets, uh, we want Endeavor to be the, the airline of choice for the regional portfolio. Definitely. Well, and if we're operating the CRJ product and the ERJ product, then no matter what, we're able to pick up the slack for any other carrier that may be operating in that DCI portfolio. We could be kind of that one-stop solution. It does. And when you think about the disruptions that occur day in and day out, so take Republic out there on the East Coast. Uh, if they get in trouble with their EJET, what do we have today? We've got a Bombardier airplane that we can put in place. Uh, not the preferred in those business markets. Think about tomorrow. Republic gets in trouble. We've got e-jets. We can pick up the slack. We can fly for them. It really does make business strategically for us to really look at that e-jet really hard. And I know in my conversations with Jim yesterday, uh, pretty excited about it. I'm excited about the ability to just dust this business plan off. Uh, let's get back into it. Let's get people juiced down in Atlanta, get them ready, uh, get them thinking about it. And uh, you know that's all part of branding, right? We've got a great brand that we can take down to Atlanta. And uh, e-jets, I think, would be a, a great thing for us to add. But again, you know, we, we've got to prove ourselves and we've got to have the best cost model. Uh, we've got to be ready for the growth. So Perfect. You know. Well, before we get into the fleet plan vision and, and the lead conference that you guys just did, because I know you wanted to touch on that and kind of bring some information to the pilot group about those things. One final piece, you know, there are some pilots out there that believe in this environment because of how competitive it is that 130, 131 may not be enough. And that the ultimate solution or the right solution, the one that is going to give you the most bang for your buck is seniority and longevity. Now, this is a conversation, Philip, that, you know, and this is for the, all our listeners here. 
how many times have we had this? I, I mean, think we've had it almost every time we get together. <laughs> I think absolutely. I think you're correct. And not just at the table, but in our sidebar discussions as well. And you know what that means for the pilot group, um, you know, in negotiations, a lot of times you'll have smaller group sidebar discussions. Maybe it's one on one, maybe it's two on two. A lot of times that really helps both parties understand where this this package could go. Sidebars are very useful. And I've had a lot of those with you uh, over the course of 130 and 131. And I know that Endeavor has been very strong advocates um, to try to get a seniority and longevity based model. Understand Delta's concerns, but I think it'd be great um, to hear uh, the pilot group to hear that, you know, Endeavor has been advocating just as hard as the Endeavor MEC because we do believe that that's the long term solution. Oh, I agree. Yeah, a, a great question for me, too. Uh, myself, Russ, Jay, everybody that's been in the negotiations with you, we heard you loud and clear. Uh, we see the value in that seniority number and be able to take that forward. And we also have been advocating that with Jim. And in a lot of cases, we have Jim's support on, we realize that uh, this seniority number is important. We the, the membership will see value in that. We also believe that Delta would see value in that. And he has taken that, he has championed that and taken that forward as well. But again, it just runs into, you know, it kind of runs in the timing, you know, and, but with Delta and, and their negotiations with Alpa on the section six, uh, now that that's open, very well could be a topic of conversation as we go through, right? And it's something that I think we need to keep on the front burner every time we're talking to Delta is that that at the end of the day is going to be the real key to success in the long term is if we're able to get that uh, seniority number for everybody. So it's, it's, a, it's a vision. Um, I think you will always keep that in front of me as long as we're around each other. Uh, and I expect we'll continue to fight for it. So we understand, right? I think this leadership team here at Endeavor really understands the value and what that means. That's great to hear. Thank you, Philip. Well, let's uh, let's switch topics a little bit. I know that you wanted to touch on the fleet plan vision and, and again, a little bit about that lead conference. So what information do you have for us uh, regarding those topics? Yeah, so fleet plan, I, you know, I just want to really reinforce on the horizon what we have coming to us. So stabilize, we can add four additional aircraft for next year. Uh, we also have 11 aircraft right on the heels of that. We just talked about E-jets. Uh, I think it might be good to talk about the 200s as well, real quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that 200 is uh, really susceptible to fuel prices. We see the fuel price volatility out there. Uh, I can tell you what, I haven't gotten a phone call from Delta saying, hey, we put a contingency plan together on parking CRJ 200s because of current fuel prices. I, I just think uh, right now they're not at that point of having to make those decisions. But in the long term, just look at the value of that, that 200 operation for us. I look at those as great farming aircraft. And so let me put that into context <laughs> for everybody. Uh, with a lot of uh, the communities are growing outside of the major, major metropolitan areas. And so people are moving out into the burbs. And when you look at that, uh, there's going to be demand out in those communities outside of those big city centers. And, you know, they're going to go to their local elected officers um, or politicians, and they're going to pursue trying to get some, you know, perhaps more EAS. Uh, or trying to get an airport opened up where they can begin to fly uh, operations into there. What a perfect fit for a 50-seat airplane. So that aircraft today is in its sunset phase. Uh, Jim and I have had conversations about re-engaging with MHI and also having some further conversations with uh, Embraer. Uh, Embraer has a prop uh, solution, which uh, wouldn't neither one of us think is going to work in our operation. Uh, it's, it's, uh, really fits nicely over in a European operation, but not in the United States. Should I give you the pilot line props are for boats? Yeah, there you go. I, uh, yeah, I'll take that to heart. I'm not, I'm going to write that one down. Props are for boats. Uh, but 
you know, with that, with that being said, you know, Jim and I've talked about reengaging with the OEMs on, you know, take a look at it. There's these markets are going to be here. What are you guys doing? Can you not see the vision? People moving out of the big cities, moving into the smaller communities, they're going to want service out there. So I really look at this 50 seat aircraft as a great farming aircraft and such a, uh, has good strategic value to Delta. You just got to find the right replacement at the end of the day, right? You've got environmental concerns with the airplane. It, you know, it's got a big, heavy carbon footprint. Uh, how do you make it better in the future? So getting that next gen uh, 50 seat aircraft is really on my, is really top of mind for me. And I believe it is for Jim too. So we've got some work to do on that. We've got to engage with them. So kind of as, as a follow-up question to that, Philip, we recently saw the announcement from Sky West that they want to pull out of 29 EAS markets. Does that give us at Endeavor an opportunity if we can stabilize and grow? Well, I I definitely, when, when you look at it, the majority of those aircraft that are coming out of those EAS markets are, are, are going to be from their United operation and not the Delta operation. So our ability to go in, so take a look at it. Is there a unique opportunity for Delta to go into those particular markets and steal them, right? Mm-hmm. Get that market share. Well, quite possibly, uh, we may have the ability to go do that. Uh, a lot of it's going to depend on 130 and 131, how we, how we are, are able to stabilize. And if we're able to stabilize quicker, uh, and we can show that we can fly more, oh, wow, what a, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to go in there and grab some of those markets. Uh, Delta's always out there. They're looking for the next market. And uh, maybe, maybe there's an opportunity, Nick. Yeah, we just have to let it play out. But sure. Um, I'm always an optimist. Uh, you know, uh, I also, also want to be, you know, from a strategic standpoint, I want to I get into things. A first mover advantage is always there for you. So if you see somebody coming out, great opportunity to go in if you have the ability to do it. So Absolutely. I love Endeavor to be, you know, the one of the choice. The one doing, uh, the one leading. The one going, one <laughs> first mover advantage, yep. Well, speaking of leading, I know that uh, the last topic you wanted to kind of touch on was lead. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so last week we had a two-day session where we brought in all the leaders across uh, Endeavor, and uh, we spent an entire day just going through the operations, what the vision was, and what I wanted to share with the membership today was just really some of the vision for 2022. I just touch on a few areas that I think are really important. And one area where I'm, I'm really going to need the membership's help. And uh, so why don't we just start there? So we, we start off with five pillars, and, and we look at that as the five pillars of success, and it all is encompassed by people. People start first. And it's all about connecting. It's all about sharing ideas. It's all about getting together. Uh, I feel very comfortable talking with you, Nick, and, and hearing from the membership, hey, what's on the top of your mind? You know, hopefully in the future, we can do this very often. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whoever's sitting in that seat, ultimately, hopefully we have the opportunity where we can engage and just share ideas. And I feel like that's the best way to move forward in that. So real focus on engagement. And you'll see a lot of that coming as we, as we move forward in 2022. Want to develop people, but also we want to just create that career journey for everybody as well. So not only put that great training footprint in place, first class, but also your career journey. And so obviously that started uh, with the pilot group. We got that flow done. We got the cap done. Uh, but we also want to expand that out to other business units as well who have some opportunities. So, um, you know, Patty Allen's looking at flight attendants. Is there a way we can have, you know, won't, it won't mirror exactly what we have with the pilots, but is there some type of program we can put in place for, for the flight attendant group? Uh, seems plausible. Jim's involved. We're trying to put that together. But then everybody else who works in the tower, mm-hmm. you know, we really want to, we want to take a look at, are there opportunities for those folks too to go to Delta? Should they want to? You know, a lot of folks want to stay here at Endeavor, which, sure. is, which is a great thing. Safety. Uh, this is where I think we're, I'm going to need the membership's help. Uh, big focus on just injury prevention. And I know during the wintertime, we, we seem to sustain, you know, in that pilot group, injuries, slips, trips, falls, icy, you know, 
you run into ice down there when you're doing your walk arounds. Love to have some dialogue with pilots on, hey, what do we think we can do to make that better and make that safer? So oh, I, know, I think a couple of weeks ago, I opened that door up with you about having that dialogue, but that'll be something I think you're going to see me come forward with with you guys is let's, let's, let's have some dialogue on this. How do we make this better? How do we make it safer for the pilots? Especially when you're coming down there in those winter months, you know, what, what do we need? New shoes? Do we need something different? Do you need ice shoes? You know, we, we've just got to, we've just got to kick that ideas around and come up with something that makes it safer for you. Especially, I, I know you're probably tiptoeing around when it's icy out there. Let's fix that. You know, and the only way we're going to do that is to work together. Uh, also in safety, ODIs. Uh, you see them, you've probably encountered them. Uh, we are really focused on them. And the, the big one right now is just gear, gear retract events, right? Um, the, and what we're finding, the core problem of that is uh, what we're seeing, the, the below-wing folks who you know, pull the aircraft out um, are actually putting those straps, those toe straps, in the wrong place. And it is causing damage to the, to the nose gear. And then you get up in the air and you, you can't retract, right? You get a, you get a, a, a warning message or, or, or some other item. And uh, you know, we just, we've got to fix that. And so big, heavy focus on training down there. And ODIs, uh, what's going to be unique is we're trying to go into what's called real-time management. So that's the next generation of this, and, uh, or real-time monitoring, that is. And uh, real-time monitoring is we have wired uh, 37 of 43 of our aircraft so far uh, where you actually are getting a good downlink feed through ACARS down into a, a database uh, within Delta Connection. And we're collecting data on, on sensors and warnings and how the aircraft is performing. We're going to take all that data and put it into some modeling so that we can have some predictive maintenance. Uh, that way, when you get in the air, you have just that much more security around an ODI. Like, hey, I know Philip and his team, they're looking at ODIs. They're looking at all the trends. Uh, they're trying to get in front of it. And so that's the next evolution of this on ODIs that I'm pretty excited about. It's going to take some time. We've got to get all the data on the airplane from the aircraft. But I really do think we can start really kicking these ODIs down uh, in the future. And I know that's even from a safety perspective for our, for our pilots. That matters at the end of the day. Um, let's just talk about operations. Operations are great. Um, uh, have nothing but great things to say about performance in 2021. Uh, so far, year to date, 2022, it's been all about weather. Uh, you remove weather out of the equation. Uh, you got a little bit of a COVID spike there in January. I think the pilots incurred quite a bit of that. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, you move those kind of those two anomalies out. You just look at the core operation and the operation is performing marvelously, right? It's doing great. Uh, we'll stay on it. You know, uh, boogeyman's out there. He'll get you if you're not careful, but we'll, we'll continue to focus on it. Uh, airports in general, a lot of construction out there. Uh, some great things with our hub directors. So uh, we do have some hub directors in place that are looking out for the crews making sure that we have the crew lounges as these airports are expanding. So we've got people in there that are being proactive to make sure that we have the crew space that we need available to everybody. Uh, customer service, uh, knocking it out of the park. I think what another area where we can really focus in, I know the flight attendants have gotten some great grades on that. I think the pilots are in a good spot. It's all going to be about how do we, how do we improve on that? So there's a, a customer service roundtable group that we've put together. And uh, about invited Brad Bale to be a participant on that as a representative of the pilot group of just how we continue to move the needle on that. So Delta looks at us and we're the top of the portfolio in DC and how do we get better? You know, how do we compete with mainline? What are those things that we can do better? Uh, you got enough, you know, when you look at the pilots, you got enough on your shoulders already to operate the airplane and make sure it's safe. Uh, but you know, it is amazing when you take a look at the results from our customers 
when they have pilot interaction, it is the biggest difference in the scores. It's amazing, especially when you get into a, into delay. So a lot of it's just going to be education, sharing information with everybody. And so you'll see a concerted effort over the year of, of focusing in on that. And I think the last thing will just be finance, you know, with 130 and 131, that puts financial pressure on us. Uh, we're going to have to overcome that. But where we overcome it, uh, and I'm an optimist about it, is that uh, we are able to operate more efficiently in the future. Uh, we can grow the airline back. And that's the key thing here is you take your cost on the top and you divide by block hours on the bottom. And that's your denominator. Mm-hmm. So the more we're able to fly and be efficient, uh, the better that cost scenario is going to play out. So uh, pretty excited about 2022. Uh, look forward to this partnership with with Alpha Team. Uh, we can we can uh, really make this uh, a great airline. You know, working together. Yeah, from the finance standpoint, I mean, your fixed costs are your fixed costs. Whether you fly yep. one hour, ten thousand hours, yep. you know, per, per month, fifty thousand hours, it doesn't matter. Those costs are baked into it. So yes, I mean, I think every pilot out there understands that the more we fly, the more efficient and and um, more lucrative yep. that we can become on that. So yep. hey. Philip, thank you for uh, sharing that. Is there anything else you want to share with the pilot group before we uh, we end the podcast? Yeah, if I just sign off. Hey, I, I just want to tell everybody how much I appreciate them out there. Uh, the relationship that we have here on the management team with Nick and and this team is is strong. Uh, I know that took a lot of work. Uh, you definitely have my commitment that we're going to keep this relationship strong as we go forward. I know uh, the leadership team here on the MEC is going to be changing in time, but it, you'll find at least on this leadership team, you, you have, you have our respect, uh, and we're going to continue to work with you and find the best solutions out there, you know, for the membership. So no, I appreciate that. And we, you know, in the MEC side, we keep it about people product process because that all leads to good results for the pilots. And so my true belief is it really doesn't matter who's in what position, as long as you adhere to that people product process, you understand those relationships, you're always going to produce a, like I said, a, a top tier product for the pilots of Endeavor. And that's what we've uh, committed to do together. And that's what we've been very successful doing for the last, what, 10 years at this yeah, point. Yeah. So You've delivered on it and uh, we intend to deliver on that in the future. So awesome. we're, we're there to support you. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Philip. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show, sir. Thanks, Nick. And uh, go Braves. <laughs> go Braves. All right. Usually at this point in the podcast, we answer a question from a front line, but we did not receive any for this podcast, uh, probably because we received a slew of them um, during the comment period for LOA 130 and 131. Just remember that if you have a topic that you'd like us to cover on a podcast, or if you have a specific question, please email edvonair at alpha.org. If we select your question or your topic on the show, we will send you a gift from the MEC. I'd like to thank you for uh, listening to the podcast. I hope everyone is doing well out there. Fly safe, be safe. We'll see you out on the line. Take care. Send over 31, runway 28, quit the land.